Thank you for listening to the Silver Club Podcast. Here's your host, two-time Walker Cupper and former world amateur number one Steve Scott, and men's golf coach at Yale University and golf historian Colin Sheehan. episode creeping closer to the half century mark with the silver club podcast what is going on up there in connecticut right now you guys got a lot of snow huh it's a nor'easter i mean 16 inches and counting here in southern new england uh it is snowpocalypse definitely it was a (laughs) was a good day when sledding twice with my girls and definitely not gonna be getting the type of february golf out there uh that we got last year this time when it was pretty mild so it's yeah. it's full-on heavy duty super thick blanket of snow winter wonderland but get love your it. park get your park on i remember when i was in eighth grade i i lived in northwest corner of arkansas for my eighth grade year and i remember we had a big sheet of ice and obviously different than half a foot of snow or a foot of snow or whatever but i remember with the real metal spikes going out in the ice and the and the weather and like kind of gripping the gripping the ground with my with my you know being a florida boy that was really my first uh my first scene of that you know as as a youngster and it was uh, but yeah snowpocalypse right it's uh <laughs> definitely something well i guess it probably gave you enough time to sit around and watch a little bit of what happened this weekend saturday afternoon particularly and we're talking patrick reed i mean it's the story that it's just it just doesn't end doesn't this uh this debacle of of Patrick Reed and and somehow some way he comes away unscathed with a victory. I mean, his mental forty he must just be able to he must just wear earplugs and just kind of put everything away. I I don't know how he does it with all of the scrutiny that's always on top of him. You know, the timing's impeccable. It's the, the farmers is always this weekend the the first weekend since early September without the NFL. So like we're we're all we like golf finally gets like it's 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 front and center kind of debut for the year and leave it to Patrick Reed to just create a spike in golf interest for everybody. I mean, what first off, I mean, tell me, walk me through how, you know, what you thought, what you're thinking, what your sort of full digestion is on this, on this matter. Oh my goodness. Well, uh, first of all, let's just, I'll start with giving him a fractional benefit of the doubt just for one moment, brief moment. (laughs) And then we'll, and then we'll, then we'll dig on him. But, but he hit a shot. He was out of a fairway bunker. He was hitting into the sun. He, you know, I'll give him, I'll give him the pass. Maybe he couldn't see the ball, you know, when it landed over by the path and it was way left of where he intended to hit the golf ball. And, you know, but then, then he comes up to it. Obviously we saw it clear as day on the, on the broadcast. And, and ironically enough with CBS, this was the very first day of their, of their coverage and kind of a revamped coverage. They've got a new, a new producer uh, named Seller Shy. They did a great job on the production elements, all that stuff. But they also had the PGA Tour, a PGA Tour rules official named Ken Tackett in the booth for the very first time, kind of like Gene Steratore, who does the uh, the NFL, you know, gives the uh, kind of the inside calls before the referee actually makes the calls. But and and so you know, we clearly saw the ball bounce and. 
we basically know if we've played golf, you know, once in our life, if a ball bounces, it really can't embed on the second bounce. Right. I mean, it doesn't make Certainly any not sense. its own, not its own mark. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. Obviously the rough was very thick. Um, you know, he, he got up there, redid and, he he you know, he kind of he he set it up perfectly by asking the the marshal who was out there who they don't see golf balls really well anyway and weren't expecting to look for a ball left of the cart path they were looking for it somewhere around the green or whatever and hey did the ball bounce he says and she said well i didn't see it um so then it was perfect scenario for him to just kind of lead into hey i'm going to check this ball and to try to get his hands on the ball. And his playing partners were, you know, 30, 40 yards away. And, you know, you know he, he called over. He says, yeah, I'm going to check this to see if it embedded. His hand was down in that rough for an uncomfortable amount of time. And then he ends up taking the ball out and moving it over. He, the ball is in his hands before the rules official, who he called over uh, to, to make a call, came over to to look at it but i guess what 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 bugs me is that is that the and it's got to be some sort of way they can do this and maybe it's because the the you know he's he's on television and maybe the guy who's in 50th place did not have their shots televised and didn't have that luxury or whatever but the 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 fact that he was in there put his hands on the golf ball he should have, you know, knowing that what he knows about himself and his track record recently, he should have done, said something like, hey, you know, when the rules official came over, hey, you know, I don't know if this bounced. The rules official did, or the marshal didn't see it. I need to, can you just quickly call the truck or maybe, you know, had the, the bat line to that Ken Tackett who's right on the telecast and say, hey, just tell me if this ball bounced. That's all I need to know. It would take all of... 20 seconds to make a radio call and do that. Less, that's less what, than that's a why minute. they have those. Yeah. Less than a minute. It's very yeah. quick. Xander Shoffley actually came out with a, with a comment saying that's something that he would have done. You know, it's a common practice. Hey, you know, if you know that you're, first of all, you're leading by four shots at the time, like he was. So you know that your shots are being televised. You know that you're in a fishbowl, a very small fishbowl, especially when you're Patrick Reed. And so... Everything he does is in question. You know, he kind of did it. He kind of did it the right way, but there there could have been absolutely more done as far as some, you know, like him moving the golf ball out of the way there. It just, it looks so fishy. And then obviously you take everything that he's done uh, up to this point in other situations. And, you know, it's just, it's just one one other nail in the coffin as far as I'm concerned with the golfing life of Patrick Reed. I, what I saw is someone who couldn't help himself. He can't stop himself. He's a, com- he's a compulsive cheater. You know, he, he, he doesn't, it's not a blatant thing. It's in a gray area and it's something that in his mind, I guarantee you, he doesn't think he's doing anything wrong. He's taking advantage of the rules. You know, I mean, I don't, like he obviously is not trying to avoid it. Like you and I would a- avoid any appearance <laughs> of impropriety, right? You would just Completely. avoid it. You would, it wouldn't, it would be a non-issue. Hey guys, come over here. Will you check it? In the meantime, I'm going to ask the cameraman who's five feet from me. If you could quickly walkie talkie the booth and can you guys check if it bounced again, leading by four, this isn't like he's an, 
and he can't stop himself. You know, <laughs> I mean, Xander Shaw. I mentioned Xander a moment ago. Yeah, he, he when he was asked if he's ever ran into a similar situation on the course, his response was direct and to the point. I would not put myself in in, in a situation that like that. If my ball's embedded, I usually will wait till call someone and kind of wait till everyone's on the same page and wait to look at the video. So I try to avoid situations like this for just that reason. I mean, it's just, you know, you can't, you can't, you, you have to avoid the appearance of wrongdoing. I mean, I think yes. that that's the big thing. It's, I think that's what golfers, that's what bugs me the most. Golfers, you know, unlike other sports, we police ourselves. We, you know, we call penalties on ourselves and he seems to work it, you know, work the system in the other way. And man, it just gets, it gets me riled up. It gets, I think it gets the whole golfing world. If you've, if you've taken one glance at social media, you know, if there's, there's 1% of the population that is supporting him and 99% or maybe more that, uh, that are in complete disbelief, not disbelief, but just, just horror that he continues to yeah he continues to badmouth the game of golf with his actions it's embarrassing it's absolutely embarrassing that little charade where what happened there where he pointed into the ground to sort of show the rules official where it might have been embedded like as if he was just taking a guess like what was that like yeah you know yeah. Yeah, the rules. Uh, you know, the, yeah, the rules official was like, "Okay, what are we talking?" Like he didn't know what they were talking about until he got up there. Oh, the ball was in bed. Oh, where's the ball? Oh, it's over here. But here's yeah. the little here's the little hole that, that you know that I've you know. And look, at the end of the day, the 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 tour officials look. He was there. He made a call, just like the NFL officials do. And right in the end, in the end, that little bit, the the rules official said he did because you have to go on this 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 sort of assumption of the golfer behaving honorably. And that's the problem with Patrick Reed is even after he knew he was sort of someone publicly identified has sort of a, has a red flag, a person, if he, a person who could, could had some awareness going forward from his sort of fairly public episodes would try a person capable of winning nine times and a major champion mm-hmm. would for his own benefit, make sure that going forward, that will never happen again. And what I saw on Saturday was someone who cannot stop himself. You know, <laughs> it's, mean, it's a, it's a, it's a bad disease. Right. And then, and then the, the, so he, so, you know, of course, of course he gets the drop, he gets it up and down and makes a par out of it. Right. Right. Um, and then, and then the very next hole, if you saw, he plugs it in the in the bunker in the long par three eleventh, and and the the announcers made a made a couple of sly remarks. Uh, uh, it was either Frank Nabilo or Baker French said, "Well, now remember, he can't touch this ball. Now it's in the it's in the sand." And then Faldo chimes in and says and says, "Yes, I think the golf gods have been watching." <laughs> <laughs> it was too perfect. You know, he it's it's interesting now too. Is in revealing is you remember that sort of famous episode where he didn't get a great break. He didn't get a great or in his mind from a, a rules official years ago. And he said, "Well, if Jordan Spieth, I mean, to me, that's like a damning statement that he feels that he is there is like that he is owed. 
he's denied kind of the star treatment and that he's entitled to it because he's Patrick Reed as mm-hmm. if like the, the, like as if in golf, there's something akin to the Jordan rules of, of foul calling from the, from the refs, like, <laughs> exactly. you know, like, Oh, like if, if I was just more likable and more famous and a little bit, you know, you'd, you'd let me no the, the, the judgment isn't because it was, somebody special maybe in the past that one time they all moved the rock for tiger woods i guess he got a, a tiger break but in general there's you know these rules it's justice is blind but i think pat reed thinks that if he got you know it was a crap lie in the rough and the and the volunteer said she didn't see it bounce that's that was just the when that was all the opening he needed to like let's i'm gonna i don't deserve all right it. every volunteer anybody who's listening to this podcast every volunteer who's listening to this podcast for a tour event from now on and patrick reed or anybody comes through you said yep i saw it bounce <laughs> i definitely <laughs> right. saw it bounce there would be no there'd be no issues but yeah you're 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 relying on somebody who's probably not watching exactly what they need to be watching and you know they're they're a volunteer i mean you know they're they're the volunteers are very important but you know they're just not they're not on the same page as uh as the uh the, the tour i'd love to actually get her on the podcast that, that i would think it was a female uh, volunteer get her uh, get her opinion on the whole thing but yeah it's it's just it puts a black mark on the game with if anybody who you know we all appreciate the game to such a level that that those sorts of things just really they sit so oh they just they put a knot in your stomach really as a as a golfer you know, like like we are, and like most people are, who who value the integrity of the game. It's uh, uh, I, I, it eats at the core. It eats at the core of the foundation of it, right? Like yeah. you, your score is your score. You live by it for better for worse. You have a bad day. We've all been there. I mean, you're you're you know? such a historian of the game. I mean, what would our golfing forefathers be saying right now? Uh, I mean, it's you know, you think about the original rules of golf and. You know, and playing the ball as it lies and doing all these things. And man, it's just. Mm. Well, it's it's right. It's it's <laughs> there's flawed individuals who play it, you know, and and it's it, it and it's held. Can't always presume just because you play golf doesn't mean you have some type of your, you know, automatically comes with your own sort of set of, you know, baseline of integrity and. And, and, and there's a lot of money on the line and there's a lot of temptation, I suppose. And, and it's fleeting, but what's, you know, it's fascinating that he thinks he could do it with the, with, with, with the whole world watching. That's what's kind of amazing to me, which again, goes back to my point that I think he, it's, it's something compulsive that he can't, you know, and so I wish the kid, I wish him well that he could come around and he's obviously a talented player, you know, um, but he needs to, he, he's embarrassing the sport. He's embarrassing himself and he's, he's, he's embarrassing the sort of reputation in the game. And I can't, you know, then that's no, a problem. No, we have to, we have to stand up for that. There's no question about that. Uh, all right, let's see, before we get to our podcast today with David Armitage, the great instructor who's learned from the likes of Jim McLean's of the world. Um, what let's uh, just 
let's talk about something positive. We have, I need, I feel so down right now. I feel so, uh, I feel I so a great de- story. All right. All right. Come on. Bring, bring us up here, Colin. It's up to you. So I've, you know, I've, one thing I do want to uh, share is I've been, uh, uh, Will and I have been helping um, Zach Blair on his project in Aiken, South Carolina. He, he sort of reached out for some advice and help. And uh, I know it got some press recently that uh, Tom Doak's going to be doing the routing. Great. Um, and Kai, our friend Kai Golby is going to be sort of leading the shaping and construction. So down there in Aiken County, South Carolina, uh, down in the southeast in a sandy area of the state. I know you. I know how much we love going to Palmetto and we and and Sage and that whole and being near not, Augusta. Not not too far away from Augusta National too, right? Right. And uh, you know, I think we should have we'll have Zach on on sometime soon to talk about it. But uh, of course, you know, based on all the things that we love, like where golfers can come and stay for one or two nights and, and just get away from it all and play as many holes as they can squeeze in, in a day. And, um, you know, of course, without any real estate component, just really with the, with, uh, with the, with a cuisine that honors the, uh, best culinary traditions of the, of the region, you know, just the type of golf experience we all love. And where all rounds can be completed in three hours and fifty-five minutes. That's right? that's exciting. Maybe in a yeah, maybe in not even a, a two or three ball. Maybe a lot more than that. What what is the official name of this Zach Blair project going to be called? Does it have an official name? The Tree Farm. So uh, it's you know it's it's got some serious terrain. It's got some great potential. It's going to have a nice kind of you know the kind of uh, sort of the native textures, attractive, you know, wow, um, cool. it's like a Southeast American Heathland. So it'll be fun. You're going to, you're going to love it. It's going to, it's going to have good, good, good sort of uh, a good flow. And there's eventually, hopefully someday an extra sort of short nine hole course, a real, a, a, a great place, definitely a great silver club kind of place, you know, all right. All right. All right. That sounds that sounds really good. I can't wait. I mean, we have so many great venues lined up for our Silver Club schedule this year. But yeah, I can't wait for the tree farm to uh, to get going and seeing pictures on social and all that. And yeah, maybe, you know, since this is our we're creeping up to our, our next episode is our 50th. This is number 49, but our next episode is our 50th. Maybe we got to get Zach Blair on for our 50th and uh, celebrate our uh, half-century mark by learning a little bit more about the tree farm. That'd be pretty cool. That'd be pretty cool. All right. All right. Well, Colin, as usual, great chatting with you. This Patrick Reed thing is not going away anytime soon. I'm sure we'll be discussing uh, him for a long time. Uh, Hopefully not much more in the negative, but I feel like it's uh, I don't know. We just we've got to we got to get past this Patrick Reed thing. I got to I don't know. Something something's got to happen. <laughs> I think I, I think ultimately what 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 I think we'd all like to see is just, you know, we're 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 capable of forgiveness. You know, I would love to see him one time acknowledge that he's he's let himself down. And he's he's let the game down and that he's going to sort of make a sort of public declaration or vow to sort of to, to have 
to, to hold himself to the standard that that is expected of someone who's clearly a top 10 player in the world there of, you of go. any of any of any golfer of a golfer of, of any caliber but especially someone who's sort of at his echelon thank you colin but before we get to this great podcast i just wanted to share some info about the silver club golfing society Our competitive amateur society continues to grow, and we have a great schedule of events on the docket for 2021. We'll be at places like The Farm in Georgia, Ballyneal in the beautiful hills of Colorado, as well as Oak Hill, a major championship venue and Ryder Cup past venue that has just been redone last year by Andrew Green. We have a tremendous slate of events, a camaraderie-infused competition, if you will, all over the country in all the major markets. Just hop on our website, silverclubgs.com on the web, and in the social media world at Silver Club Golf on Instagram and Twitter. We're on Facebook and LinkedIn as well. So keep an eye on everything we're doing with the Silver Club Golfing Society. I'd also like to thank our sponsors, the Winston Collection, Turtleson Apparel, and Torch Eyewear. Three great companies, three great stories, all great products. We can't thank each of these companies enough for their support during our schedule all year long. We look forward to seeing each and every one of you at a Silver Club event at some point this year. So check us out on all the aforementioned avenues. You won't be disappointed. Okay, without further ado, let's get to our podcast this week with David Armitage, Master PGA Professional and Coach of the Stars. Okay, it is episode number 49 on the Silver Club Podcast. We have one of the greatest instructors in the whole United States and in the whole world joining us today. Hey, Steve, it's great to be with you and what an honor to be uh, joined joining you on the show today. Well, we've had a lot of great instructors on, but I think you're the first one from across the pond. I mean, I, sounding from your your voice, you're not from Tennessee, are you? <laughs> uh, not from Brooklyn either. No, uh, um, I'm from a small town that many golfers have never heard about called St. Andrews. Oh, yeah. Vaguely, vaguely know something about it. Uh, yeah, I guess you would you would kind of want to get in, into the game uh, growing up in St. Andrews, huh? No, absolutely. You know, you're surrounded by golf. You're surrounded by by tradition. You're surrounded by just uh, you know, I, I, you live and breathe the game in in Scotland in general. But in St Andrews, it's like a bubble. It's like everybody plays. Everything revolves around golf. You know, the bars all have flags in them. Uh, pictures of great golfers. Uh, you know, and anyone who uh, anyone who loves golf at some point in their life crosses uh, over that uh, Swilcombe Burn and plays up the famous 18th hole. It's one of the greatest settings in all of golf. I've been fortunate enough to be there and it just oozes golf, right? And we just, uh, yeah, you can't get enough of that. It's a a great, great area. Uh, The last six years, just so our listeners get an understanding of of who you are and where you're coming from. Uh, the last six years, you've been named as Golf Digest Top Young Teachers in America. That uh, uh, that issue just came out uh, recently, actually. So uh, congratulations on that. You're 38 years old, so you have uh, <laughs> you've been a great teacher for a long time. No, it's been a look. It was a passion of mine. I I tried to play the game as many of us did, and I, I soon realized that. 
you know, I wasn't going to make it. And I also enjoyed being at, when I was at tournaments trying to compete, I actually enjoyed, you know, with my friends trying to help them with their games. You know, that was where my teach, my passion for teaching started. And from there, I sort of, I decided that I was going to put everything I had into researching the game and spending my time with the best minds in golf to try and learn and one day be equipped to actually help some of the best golfers in the world. Yeah, and we'll we'll talk about a couple of those players in a moment. But uh, additionally, you were uh, voted a couple of years ago as the PGA section of South Florida chapter teacher of the year in 2018, and you're one of the the one of the few PGA master professionals out there, which is a, a tough feat to accomplish. What drives you in the game so hard to accomplish all of these goals at such a young age? Well, look, I, I think you know you've you've got to learn, right? And learning is a big part of my life and education and trying to get better and trying to, you know, look, I always say to myself, you know, if Tiger Woods would have, would call me and want help with his swing, I want to be equipped to answer that question. I want to be able to stand up and be able to help the best player in the world, um, you know, improve the game or be able to give him some knowledge that maybe he hasn't heard before or, you know, and, and to be ready for that moment, you, you have to go out there and learn and research and, and watch some of the best and, and try and get gain as much experience as possible. So, you know, I, I wasn't uh, gifted with being able to play in a lot of big tournaments. Uh, you know, I didn't have a big amateur career, um, although I tried to play. I played a few challenge tour events and one European tour event. I wasn't, you know, I didn't play with a lot of the best players, so I didn't go that route. I didn't play college golf. Mm -hmm. So really what I've decided was to really put myself into reading as many books as I could, spending as much time with the great minds of the game and uh, putting myself in as much education as I could. Well, one of those great minds uh, that that we know, and he's uh, he's written the forward to your book that we'll talk about shortly is Jim McClain. Uh, Jim was our guest on episode 39 of our podcast. And what are some of the takeaways that you have learned from Jim that you incorporate into your day-to-day routine? You know, less is more, uh, simplicity, um, you know, uh, using my words a little bit more carefully, um, because then they become more powerful. So, you know, Jim really taught me how to research the game properly. Uh, you know, when I had a question about the swing, he would often send me on a mission to go and film some of the best players at some of the big events and uh, come back to, to him with a sort of uh, an outline of what I saw and what I was seeing and and then discuss it from there. You know, he didn't want me just guessing the answer. He always wanted us to go and find out what was actually happening in the golf swing. And he always looked to the best players for that. Um, but I love watching him teach. I watched him teach everyone from Gary Woodland and Lexi Thompson and Keegan Bradley to, you know, watching him work on a day-to-day basis with some complete beginners that come down to his golf schools than wanted to take up the game. And uh, regardless of who was in front of him, Jim put in the same amount of passion and effort and, uh, you know, it's infectious. Do you find that hard as an instructor, though, to to jump back and forth from the tour players like uh, like a Tom Lewis that you teach versus a, uh, you know, Terry Lewis, who's a 20 handicap who, who just showed up on the lesson tee, you know, last week? You know, what, how do you how do you approach those two and and 
and give them the you know the same sort of knowledge base and and understanding of the game. I have a great story that sort of shares it. Is basically I was uh, the BMW PGA Championship, which is the flagship event in Europe, is played at Wentworth, which is just a few miles down the road from my club Queenwood, where I teach at in the summer months. And I was working with uh, Ernie Els over at Wentworth uh, in the morning. I had to drive back to Queenwood and I gave Mrs. Jebson a lesson for about an hour and a half on the <laughs> Queenwood driving range. Uh, her swing speed with a driver topped out at about 54 miles an hour. And then I and then I worked my way back over to Wentworth and worked with Tom Lewis and Richard Sterney in the afternoon. And, uh, and I, <laughs> I sat down later that night and I'm thinking about my day and I'm like, wow, I had a four-time major champion, a Hall of Famer, and, you know, Ernie Els, who I have become very close with, uh, and Mrs. Jebson, who wants to see me at the same time every week that I didn't want to cancel on uh, because it's it was a highlight of a week to spend time together. And okay. then I went back over and worked with Tom Lewis, who's probably my greatest uh, accomplishment being part of his team. And then Richard Sterney, who's a, a very mm -hmm. talented South African player who uh, I'm privileged to have helped as well. Yeah, for sure. That's uh, that, that was one heck of a day. Uh, this just just switching gears here, talking about junior golf and and how how you ultimately fell in love with this game that we all love. I mean, what just take us back briefly to to your childhood and and you know go through a little bit of 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 how your your love for the game really really flourished as a young junior. Well, I, I didn't take up the game until I was 14. I, I played rugby. That was my main sport growing up. Um, but I, I so I took the game a little late. I held out as long as I could from the frustration of golf. But uh, uh, <laughs> once I got started, you know, it was just it was love at first sight. It was uh, it was tough. I was terrible for the first uh, few months I tried. I, I, you know, I couldn't afford any instructions. So it was sort of like, you know, just guess and keep going. I had my dad's clubs, which was the reason I started playing. My dad passed away a few years earlier and he loved the game. So I, hmm. I wanted to do something that he did. Uh, he had these, he was a scratch golfer. So he had these bladed, these ram blades that I, I still haven't found the sweet spot. And <laughs> um, you know, and, uh, you know, I just, I, I just got into it and it took me, it took me about nine months to break a hundred, uh, with a lot of effort that I put in, uh, and eight months after that, I broke 70 for the first time. So it was a little bit of a, uh, a hundred was a bigger barrier for me than par. That's very interesting. Now, uh, now taking that one step further and, and, you know, your path to the game versus maybe some juniors you teach now, or maybe you have the luxury of teaching top juniors only. But I, I, I think about this day and age as the instant gratification age. People want things now. And for, for you to say you didn't break 100 for nine months playing the game, I think most people would have quit after a couple months uh, nowadays. How, how do you see the the players nowadays versus let's say, you know, 10 or 15 years ago and and coming into the game and, and gravitating towards it or or, you know, maybe moving away from it because they're just they get too frustrated too quickly. Well, I would say my my biggest gift to all of my young students, my juniors, is to try and instill passion and and uh, effort into their routines with golf. So I'm trying to plant a seed 
it's not so much about technique at that age. I'm trying to instill a passion in them for the game. Uh, and I know if I get that passion into them, then they're going to get a lot better and we're going to have a lot of success. But to do that, you've got to make it fun. You've got to, you have got to make it, you know, you've got to, sometimes you've got to make the lessons very quick pace, you know, 10 minutes of this, five minutes of this, 10 minutes of that, keep their mind occupied. Uh, but you're really just trying to plant a seed. And, you know, I want them to go home and say to their mom and dad, I want to go to golf tomorrow. Um, and once I get them to that stage, that's when I'll start to get a little bit more, maybe, uh, a little bit more technical at times. I'll blend some technique in there, uh, a little bit more strict with them at times um, and start just pushing them a little harder. But, you know, the first thing for me is I've got to get them passionate about the game of golf. I want them to love it. I want them to have a lot of fun doing it. Um, and then when that switch flips, uh, you know, which is easy to see, you see them wanting more you they want more from you they mm -hmm. they're getting better they're shooting better scores and they suddenly you know they they're, they're asking questions so you know my junior coaching which i love is probably the most enjoyable part you know everybody's individual but i i'm really trying to breed the the love of the game in them and it is so much harder nowadays with as you said iphones ipads instant gratification like <laughs> you know they're wanting likes that you know most of my students want me to post them on instagram so that's what i i say to them i say look if you do all your practice this week you're going to be my uh you're going to be my student i'm going to post on instagram so it's amazing what's uh how things have changed there's a good incentive yeah get them on uh get your tiktok app going there for sure. <laughs> I know. Right. Um, it's so uh, you're obviously a big influence for junior golfers and, and touring professionals, but you were influenced by a lot of top teaching professionals. Uh, I won't list them all right here cause they're, they're on your website, uh, David Armitage golf.com. But talk to us about a couple uh, other than a Jim McLean, maybe a couple of the other instrumental teachers in your life that really got you really enthused to keep going down this path that you've been going down? Well, look, I think uh, Jim Farmer was probably the first guy that I really sort of, you know, I, I loved spending time with him and he was a, a stickler for the fundamentals of the game, which most British teachers are. They really, you know, are super strict on, at an early age of, uh, you know, a real, good grip, good setup, good posture, uh, things that, you know, we, we overlook a little bit more over in the, the United States. It's a little different way of teaching, but in the UK, it was very structured when I was growing up and Jim Farmer, who's a honorary professional now for the RNA, uh, in St. Andrews was a great influence for me on understanding the importance of the fundamentals of the game. Um, and then, you know, Pete Cowan, um, you know, was probably the idol that I had in the UK growing up. Uh, he's taught so many great players, uh, was a great player himself. Uh, one day has uh, suffered with some injuries early in his career and went into teaching. And, uh, you know, he, he talked a lot about the body, talked a lot about uh, what elite players do. Um, and that was fantastic to, to listen to, to learn, to go and watch. And yeah, a lot probably, of a lot of people a lot of people call Pete Cowan really the the European Butch Harmon, right? Just to oh. just to give perspective to our American crowd over here. 
uh, definitely a little drier personality than Butch, but uh, <laughs> uh, he is. He tells you how it is. Uh, he, he tells you what he thinks. Uh, he doesn't leave anything uncovered, and uh, I think that's important. He takes a very honest approach, and you know, people either love it or they hate it. And and um, you know, I think he knows more about the golf swing than than most instructors I've spent time with. And and then watching Butch, getting to go and watch Butch Harmon, you know, like uh, that was just a lifelong dream and having some dinners with him, uh, you know, it's just been fantastic. And uh, what a legend, you know, to work with the players that he's worked with, uh, you know, and some people say as great instructors, oh, they, they got talent and it's easy if you get like the likes of Tiger Woods, you know, it's just as hard to screw people up. And, and Butch had a habit of not screwing anyone up and helping them get better and helping them on their pathway. And, uh, and that's something that great instructors do. Um, and it doesn't get talked about enough. Yeah, there's no, there's no question about that. There's, yeah, there's certain instructors for sure that, that mess up more people than they help. But uh, yeah, I guess you got to take that risk sometimes if you're trying to squeeze that little last bit out to, uh, you know, to make somebody from a, a, a very good player to a world-class player. So uh, yeah, interesting, interesting perspective there for sure. One of your prized pupils, Tom Lewis, he's had some career rise uh, since in the last several years. Uh, talk about talk about Tom and maybe for you know players I mean he's been over here he, he won on the corn Ferry tour uh, a couple of years ago kind of at the end but really better known over in Europe talk about that relationship and and what you guys have worked on to help him become now the 75th uh, best player in the world well look when I when he turned up on my doorstep I was very privileged to work with young talent but he was 620th 20 in the world and uh, had really very limited status in Europe and was ready to walk out of the game you know there was nothing really that was inspiring him to keep playing um, apart from that's all he knew um, he'd won early in his career and then everything had fallen away and he was struggling and uh, he was struggling with confidence. He'd worked with Butch for a couple of years. He'd worked with Claude Harmon. He'd worked with Bob Rotella. He'd worked with Dave Pels. He'd worked with Ledbetter. He'd worked with Pete Cowan. His list of coaches were was grand. And, <laughs> you know, he's standing, he's standing in my lesson bay and I'll still remember, you know, we, we had a conversation and I started out by saying, hey, look, I'm, I'm not going to be able to tell you anything better than you've not been told before. Um, you know, I'm, I, I'm not some, you know, all of these guys that you've worked with before are better than me, have more experience than me. Um, you know, but if you give me this opportunity, you know, let's build a process, let's build a blueprint for success. And I promise you, if you stick with it, you know, we'll, we'll see some benefits, uh, but it will take some patience. And I, I essentially sold him, not a golf swing, but I sold him a mindset. Mm. Um, and I, and, and I sold him a mindset that involved a practice plan involved the way he, uh, looked at his rounds after he played them and, and, uh, sort of reminisced over more of the good than the bad. Um, there was a lot of mental uh, side that went into it. And then we built a team around him. I was involved in bringing his caddy on board, Johnny Bell, mm-hmm. um, you know, his, men- his first mental coach, Patrick Alban, who was great for him, his, one of his fitness coaches. And we really started to build a team that was about the process. And he came and lived with me for three months in Miami. Um, uh, you know, my girlfriend was cooking for him every night and <laughs> looking after him like he was uh, my little brother or, you know, a son type thing. Wow. And, 
and he he started you know he started getting better you know he started to see his dedication was going up his his confidence was was rising and um and it didn't take long before we started to see some better results and then confidence took over from there and you know last year he finished second in the WGC um at Southwind and uh had a chance to win actually he three putted basically 16 and 17 finished tied for second uh with Brooks Koepka and Phil Mickelson I think and yeah, got yeah. 40 45th in the world uh which is his highest uh hasn't had the best run from there but I'm thinking this year is going to be a great year for Tom Lewis so yeah great great stuff no, that's that's exciting. You've also worked worked with Ernie Els as well. Um, I mean, <laughs> talk about the uh, the Big Easy is he's a he's a tremendous uh, resource of of knowledge. I bet you learn as much from a guy like that as he learns from you as well. Hundred percent. You know, Ernie's been uh, amazing, and we started off with Ernie. You know, we didn't. You know, I'm not going to teach a four time major champion at 49 years old uh, new tricks, but we looked back at past footage of when he felt his best and when he felt like he was playing at the top of his game, went back to some old feelings that he had with, uh, with, uh, David Ledbetter, um, you know, back when he was working with David and, and we, we, we talked about him, we talked about some old drills and we basically went back to stuff they'd done before they gone away from because he'd been searching. Um, and he started to really build some confidence and had some good results, uh, we worked on freeing up his putting a lot. Um, and, you know, in 2019, he, in PJ Tour, he, he didn't miss a putt inside three feet. The previous year, he missed many. So uh, that was a yep. big uptick. And then and then going on the Champions Tour has been, you know, has just reignited his, his passion for the game. You know, he, he doesn't feel that pressure of the, of the PGA Tour, of not keeping up, of, you know, being the old guy out there. And uh, he now feels like he's a young guy and he's, the new guy on the block and he's uh he's showing that on the champions tour and i think he's got many many wins on the champions tour ahead of him and and what a guy like the things he does for the game steve i know you for charity mm-hmm. like um you know his son ben uh, is a very special young man and the things he does for autism is just him and liesel uh just great people to be around right i mean the school that he has down in palm beach gardens and uh, that they just you keep uh, keep building that up. That's that is that is tremendous. I mean, he he's used his celebrity to such greatness, and that's that's all you can certainly ask from a guy like that. When I think of Ernie Els, I think just a few years ago we talked. You talked about putting there for a moment, and you know, famously, he you know first hole of the Masters a few years back. He, I don't know how many putts it was from inside of three six. feet, but, but he six, right? Yeah. So he had, you know, it was, it was these yippy strokes and everything. What was the conversation like after that round and how, how do you come back? Cause a lot of our listeners of our podcast, you know, they're, they're, you know, they're single digit, good players or all across the board for that matter. But how do you come back mentally from a, a, such a, a, a devilish blow like that. And that was broadcast really all over the world. No, absolutely. You you know, but you have to put things in perspective and you have to put uh, processes uh, back in place to, to really sort of start building back the, the, the confidence. And, you know, so what we did was basically, you know, we looked at his stroke and to be honest, 
a lot of people, what they did, and Ernie did this as well, was try to lock everything down, try and stop moving. You know, like you, it's a simple route to go is, okay, I don't want to move anything because obviously if I move, that's what's caused me problems. But what it actually does is sometimes adds tension um, and, and makes it more yippy or more nervous. So what we went to is, you know, look, he has a lot of release in his golf swing. So we started really drawing putts. That was where we started with it was him trying to feel like he was drawing putts. So he was kind feeling a little, like a little would, bit more of a release, huh? Yeah. We looked at Bobby Locke, you know, a, a famous South African golfer who used to, I would say almost snap hook his putts into the hole. He was, uh, you know, there was a lot of release in there, but what a great putter he was. So we talked a lot about that. Um, and we, we got the putter head back involved. And instead of trying to keep still, it was more about let's be athletic. What's the most athletic way to put in a putt? And that is sort of stand up, not even think about it and just react to it. Um, as opposed to being frozen over the ball and thinking about, am I square? Am I lined up? Are my shoulders square? You know, and think about, okay, don't move my wrist. Don't do this. Like before you know it you've stood over it for 10 seconds and nothing's moved your pulse is rising and there is only one thing that happens from there and that is right right Um, i mean do you do you do you go to the do you have a a consistent go-to when when you get a player that's in a low mental low like that i mean where do you go do you go physical first do you go the mental side first like where where do you attack that well i i have a great like when i have and i use this for a lot of my amateur players but like if i have someone who really struggles with a putting uh, like yippee like i'll take them on the golf course and on the first hole they won't even be expecting it but they'll basically start walking up to the putt and as soon as they get close to it i go i go okay you're gonna hit this in five seconds five four, three, two. And it's amazing how many times they pull the trigger without thinking and they, and they go, wow, I didn't feel a yip. I didn't feel any nervous energy because they weren't thinking about it. And then mm-hmm. I talk a lot about, I talk a lot about like Kobe Bryant or Michael Jordan, their, their sort of jump shots where they're, they're in the midair moving away from the basket and time and time again, it went right in the middle. There was no right. technique. Uh, there was no base. There was no like wide stance secure to the ground. There was no, it was purely athleticism, hand-eye coordination. So, and then, uh, you know, Brad Faxon has been a big part recently, you know, uh, I've taken Tom to see Brad and, you know, he, uh, he sort of asked Tom a question. If you had a three footer to win a match in the Ryder couple to win a major, how would you like to hold it? And the answer was from Tom was, I want to walk up and just tap it in like I'm playing with my buddies, you know, like not even mm-hmm. line up. How, how many, how many backhanders do we miss? We don't miss <laughs> many, right? No, so, they all go so for me, So for me, that, that's, that's the, the most athletic way to putt. When we get away from that is it, the yips is the opposite end with the most unathletic We're yeah. we're thinking too much. So for me, it's all about trying to bring back some athleticism, you know, Brad likes to get him to putt with wedges or five woods. He does it a lot with uh, Rory. Um, I think that's just great. Or give him an old hickory putter. Um, and you start to see some athleticism coming back into the stroke. And that's when, uh, that's when we start to see a little bit of success. For sure. Talk about success. Who is some other than some of the players that you work with? What other touring pro is kind of your favorite to watch right now? Who do you think or maybe or and or who's maybe some of the most uh, talented up and coming players that might be a household name in the next couple of years? 
Well, I think uh, I think Xander Shoffley is someone that I really enjoy watching. I think he he has a great spirit for the game. He's super talented. Uh, I love his I love some of the things he does in his golf swing. I love his courage, and I see him being a big part of uh, golf on the PGA Tour in the coming years. Um, you know, and then I, I, I the, as far as up and coming, I think. Uh, there's a guy called uh, Rasmus Hogard uh, uh, who's over in um, Europe who's 19 years old right now. I think he's already wow. won. T- but he's a, he's a super talented young man. You don't know where it's going to go, but um, he seems to have his feet on the ground. We played a practice round with him at Wingfoot this year. Uh, really liked uh, the way he struck the ball and just uh, his presence was great. He's from uh, Denmark, I believe. So, look, there's so many great young players coming out of college, coming out. Uh, but right now, I've got to be thankful a lot to Bryson, you know, like, you know, Nick Faldo and Ledbetter sort of made the way for golf instruction back in the 90s. Bryson has opened it up again now where, you know, he's making changes, big visible changes that everybody can see and having success. And it's like it, it opens up the golf instruction that, hey, you know, like this guy's trying everything to get better, like and he's at the top of the game. So why don't you? And that's something that I think is great for, for us as golf instructors right now is what Bryson's doing, even though. It's a little crazy sometimes what I see, and, <laughs> and, 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 but hey, you you got to give it to him. Like I haven't seen a swing change as big as his that's been as successful as his has, as uh, meaning changing um, and put it into play in the PGA Tour, the highest level, won a major with it uh, in such a short space of time, and changed his body shape. You know, like he's literally, he doesn't look like the same human being. Um, Apart from his name, everything else has changed. Exactly. No, I I mean, explain to our listeners, though, of, I mean, I understand it playing professionally and you understand it being right up next to these professionals day in and day out. But explain the risk that a guy like Bryson DeChambeau took. I mean, that could have totally gone the wrong way. And it looks like it's going the right way. How risky was a move like that? And and how many other players might try to follow suit in, in that? Well, look, I, I, you know, it, it's very risky. You know, look, he was uh, 32nd in driving distance. He was uh, he was pretty accurate off the tee. He was, uh, and he'd won multiple times on the PGA Toy, won the U.S. Amateur. Uh, his his stock was trending in the right direction, you know, and he decided to make a huge change. I think now he's put on 40 pounds, is it? I think the latest I heard, and he's trying to put on more. He (laughs) has changed his swing speed from what was going 117 to now, you know, he's been clocking as much as 146 in his, in his lab with Chris Como, Mm -hmm. but on the golf course, it's about 135 now. Um, That's it unbelievable change like if anybody's gone out there and tried to swing it faster on track man they know how difficult it is uh to make that change whether you're a pj tour player or you know or a, a you know an average player it's just it's just tough to make changes uh but i think his mindset is i want to get better i'm willing to try and i think what other people's mindset is oh, I don't want to lose what I have, but I might try something. Now, there's two different, completely different mindsets. He is not scared of trying something and seeing if it works. Other people are always, they're putting a a toe in, maybe two toes in. And I I think if you're going to make a change, you've got to believe in it wholeheartedly 
and mentally be ready to, to engulf yourself in, in that change to make it work for you. There's no question about that. I mean, you, you think about engulfing yourself in a certain part of the game, though. And let's get to your book right now, I, the, the Bunker Game, How to Play with Confidence from the Sand. book came out early December. It's out on all the uh, Amazons of the world and everywhere you want to buy books. Uh, you know, the Bunker Game scares a lot of players. What are some of the, the most common mistakes that players make out of a bunker that you, you felt compelled to write a book about? Well, first of all, there's no other book out there that is just about bunkers. So it was a really it was a, a gap in the market, let's say. That, you know, books are a little bit outdated, but it was a dream of mine to write a book. There's a gap in the market where a lot of books have 10, 15 pages, but this is 144 pages with 100 uh, color, full color pictures, uh, just on bunker game. And I, I go through everything from the sats type of sand conditions, different lies, club selection, all, all different types of things I go into. And the, the biggest thing that I see is obviously the confidence goes down in the bunker. Everybody, as soon as they hit in the bunker, they drop their shoulders, drop their head. They're, they're sort of down on themselves. They're getting tense. So, you know, for me, they just don't know what to do in a bunker. It's a different surface. It's a hazard. They just have no idea. So what I try and build is a concept. And that concept is really around making sure that you understand that where you hit the sand is is primo that is most important where you mm -hmm. contact the sand the speed of the club is important because the sand can, is going to slow you down and then the loft on the club is important so speed loft and sand are what i build the whole book around um and but it really comes back to that consistent contact making sure that you know where you want to hit the sand and that's what you're focusing on um, so adding a little bit of stability to the stance um, taking out tension and having good commitment yeah i learned a lot from that as well i mean from the from the whole book i mean the bunker game is it's just a completely different shot essentially than a normal uh, full swing shot you know getting a little bit wider stance I mean the, the big thing that I saw in there that I've I always grew up making sure my stance was open to the target and all that and and sometimes I guess I'd find myself maybe cutting across it under too much you you advocate a little bit in there squaring up to the target a little bit more don't you well, absolutely. And I, we actually just saw some great posts by James Ridyard, who's a great short game instructor with Francesco Molinari hitting bunker shots from a closed stance um, because it helps the release of the club head, you know. So and that's what you're trying to do with the bunker shots. You're trying to have that little bit of under release and and expose the bounce. So, look, I, I think when you open up your stance and you open up the club face, which seems logical, open one, open the other to, to counter it mm -hmm. um, with a lofty club you're not actually opening it up because it's basically just adding loft. It's just pointing up to the sky more. Mm -hmm. um, and then you're making more of a glancing blow. So it's so hard to control your start line, control your distance, control the spin, um, and just the consistency goes down. Um, now, there's no doubt some shots I will play with an open stance. But for me, uh, Tony Johnson uh, was a great bunker player that I learned a lot from. Uh, Savvy, uh, just no one better than Savvy, really. Uh, Luke mm -hmm. Donald spent a lot of time with them. You know, the squarer the stance, uh, you know, the, the better uh, to, to create more consistency with your strike, with your target line, uh, and with your spin. Um, and all those things are so important when you're in the bunker. Have it, you tried it yet? 
I, I have a little bit. I certainly have. I, uh, I try to avoid the bunkers when I can. But, I, but yeah, you know, I, I get that's, in there. That's yeah, the next I, Getting a little wider stance, I think, definitely help. A little more stability. I tend to, I tend to move a little bit too laterally in the bunker, and that's going to kill your low point and and where you're ultimately uh, entering the sand. So uh, that's certainly helped, and I, I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, definitely a great book in there. Um, bounce of the club. How important is the bounce? And you know, there's all these all sorts of numbers on the bottom of the club now. Uh, not now, but in the last several years, you know, the bounce of the club, super important. If, if our listeners out there can't, you know, go to the tour van like the tour players can and get all these different bounces for all these different conditions, what sort of bounce would they be generally better off in with a bunker? Well, first of all, it's, it's, it's understanding the sand that you play in most often. So if you play in somewhere that's hard, packed, uh, not much sand, then you're better with a lower bounce uh, wedge for the sand. Uh, but if you are playing in the bunkers that have fluffy sand, uh, or lots of it, then you, you definitely want more bounce. So you've really got to look at the the environment that you play in on the most regular basis, uh, and and that's important. And then do you use the the the, the club elsewhere? Do you use it off uh, around the greens? So you've got to take all these things into consideration. But the bounce is your friend. Um, if you get the right amount of bounce on the wedge to start with for your swing, for your the, for the conditions you play in, uh, it, it can really help you out. You can have you can be really aggressive into the sand, and that bounce can really help help you. But if you are playing in hard packed wet bunkers and you expose that bounce so much, that ball is probably flying over the green pretty fast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, lots of great things to learn from that book. Uh, again, it's called The Bunker Game, How to Play with Confidence from the Sand. Uh, super great knowledge uh, about that part of the game. Uh, two more questions before I let you go. You've been very generous generous with your time. You've had a long day on the lesson tee uh, down there in Miami. I appreciate your time. Uh, you know, a mutual friend of ours, told me uh wanted me to remind you and and ask you about a a, maybe a fun time that you had you went to run the new york city marathon i think it was back in 2012 and it was canceled and you had a nice little excursion to atlanta um (laughs) i mean that's first of all to be able you know to to be doing what you what you're doing as a world-class instructor and then have the time oh to try to run a marathon that's pretty uh pretty big in itself no absolutely well i've I've run five marathons now i think all for charity and it's uh i tell you i'm not i'm heavy on my feet steve so it's not been easy but and the training (laughs) training at 4 a.m or 10 p.m at night is not fun either but you know look that was probably one of the greatest uh greatest accomplishments i've done you know to run the new york city marathon i've uh i've done it twice now uh which is amazing and one was canceled uh but i got to go down to atlanta with a good friend rich levine and we played a peach tree Atlantic Athletic Club, Piedmont Driving Club, uh, and Eastlake. Uh, it was spectacular. It was absolutely amazing. And we had a great time, uh, you know, being with friends on the golf course. He's, some, he's one of my best friends, <laughs> spending four days playing golf um, at the best, some of the best golf courses in the world. Um, you know, that's why we play the game, right? Like that's, that's what it's all about. You can, you can have so much fun together with friends playing, playing. And I, I, it was an amazing trip, amazing experience. 
Peachtree is probably one of my favorites of all time. Like that is, if I have a chance, that's in my top five to go back to any day of the week. That is that is a special place. No, there's no question about that. Uh, one of the homes of Bobby Jones there near Atlanta. Atlanta. Uh, you, you've done so many great things in the game thus far and building up your your teaching knowledge, your brand. Uh, you're on Sirius XM. You do a show with uh, Jeff Warren, another PGA professional uh, out of the New York of the Mets section. Uh, you've done so many things at age 38. What is left and next for you really to accomplish what's what sort of things do you have in your sights well look i i want to i want to be i want to coach a major champion you know that's that's a big goal of mine i'm hoping it'll be tom but uh i'm open to anybody out there listening if they fancy winning a major i'll be i'll be on the bag um so <laughs> you know look I, i'm trying to i i keep trying to improve i've got some great young players that are coming through i want to hope that they you know I'll have a great career in the game um, and I want to keep learning. You know, I want to keep trying to become better every day. I think every day is a school day for me. Uh, I get to learn from my students and hopefully they get to learn from me, but hopefully a major champion one day um, and uh, Ryder, having a player on the Ryder Cup team and watching the Europeans win another Ryder Cup uh, with me at the event would be amazing. Sorry to say that, but for all the USA <laughs> fans out there, but you know, I think, I think that would be the, the number one goal is to is to be able to say that I coached the major champion and uh, coached someone who played on the uh, Ryder Cup team and but ultimately Steve you know every day is fantastic I spent time you know I gave 10 lessons today uh, I, I helped 10 different people uh, hopefully enjoy the game that little bit more um, and that gives me so much joy and uh, it's easy to go home at night when you think about you know all the people that you're sort of helping have a little bit more fun playing golf. And uh, I think that's what makes it so great, this game. There's no question about that. Passing on knowledge is, uh, is the, is the essence of our game. And uh, that's, uh, you've learned a lot from a lot of people and a lot of people are learning a lot from you. And our listeners learned a lot from you today. Uh, David, uh, thank you so much for spending time with us. Where can our listeners, if they wanted to come and take a lesson from you or wanted to learn more uh, outside of the great books you've written and the Sirius XM shows that you're on, uh, where can they come and find you? I'm based down at Lagos Country Club down in Miami. Um, you know, they can uh, send me, I'm a, at David Pro Golfer is my Instagram, or they can send me an email, davidarmitagegolf at gmail.com. Uh, my website, as you mentioned, David Armitage Golf. Uh, you know, look, if they, if anybody wants help, just send me a message. I'll get back to them as soon as I can. And I'm, I'm happy to, to answer any questions and always there to help, Steve. And I appreciate, Steve, everything you do for the game as well. Uh, you've uh, followed your career and uh, it's just great to be with someone so passionate about the game and trying to get back and sharing your knowledge as well and all of your stories in the game. I, I think it helps us keep the traditions and, and keep growing the sport. Well, that's that's very kind of you to say. I, I greatly appreciate that. Yeah, we, we love this game. And, you know, for uh, if you had asked me a few years ago that, you know, would I be doing a podcast? Would I be in golf broadcasting? Uh, I just said, I don't think so. But I've really loved, you know, sharing these stories. And, you know, through through me, I can I can give all this knowledge from people like you to our listeners. And uh, that's a, a lot of fun for me as well. So thank you so much for your time. And uh, I know you got to get back out on that lesson to you again tomorrow. And, you know, best of luck with this book and 
all the other future books that you may write. Thank you, Steve. And uh, I appreciate everything you do. Thanks so much to David Armitage for spending time with us today. And we wish him all the luck in getting that major champion under his belt as an instructor. And thank you for spending time with us on this 49th episode of the Silver Club Podcast. Until next time, everybody, stay healthy, stay safe, and we look forward to bringing you another Silver Club Podcast real soon.